Welcome to Tips and Tales, Ski Racing Media's official podcast for the week of August 14th, 2019. I am your host, Sean Higgins, and before we get started, I do have a little favor to ask all of you. If you enjoy listening to Tips and Tales, please rate and review the show on your preferred listening platform. Tips and Tales is available for listening for free on virtually all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Plain and simple, rating and reviewing the show is the easiest way to get tips and tales in front of new people, expanding our audience, and helping expose more people to the sport we all know and love. All right, so on today's show, I had the opportunity to talk with breakout U.S. slalom star and NCAA powerhouse Paula Moulton before she jets down to Argentina to join the U.S. ski team for her first on-snow camp of the season. If you're unfamiliar with Paula's ski racing journey, she grew up in Minnesota and was a standout junior member of the U.S. ski team for a number of years and even won a World Junior Championship Slalom gold medal in 2015 and finished 20th in the World Championship Slalom that same season. One year later, she actually found herself off the national team looking for a place to land and found herself at the University of Vermont. As an NCAA athlete, Paul has won numerous collegiate accolades, including the 2017 NCAA slalom title. Paula eventually clawed her way back to the World Cup this past season and wasted no opportunities, finishing in the top 25 times, making her second world championship team and capped things off with a nomination to the B team thanks to finishing the season ranked 27th in the world in slalom. Paula has a really interesting perspective on the sport, and I think the conversation is one worth listening to, and for those of you wondering, she will be taking this year off of school to focus on the World Cup full-time. As always, before we get on to all of that, I would like to take just a little time to highlight some of the recent pieces published on SkiRacing.com. New contributor, U.S. Ski Team Athletic Development Coordinator Mike Bigaman has been training the best skiers in the country for the last four years and shared his top four core exercises for skiers with us and explains that when it comes to training your core, simple exercises done absolutely perfectly will actually do way more good than more complex movements done poorly. Bing has a wealth of knowledge on these topics and we are very lucky to be sharing some of his insights with all of you this season. Staff writer Mackenzie Moran was back at it with another look at the inner workings of the U.S. ski team, this time taking on the organization's offboarding process for athletes who retire or aren't nominated after each season. Mac talked with former stars AJ Kitt and Hilary Lynn, as well as Marco Sullivan, about their experiences immediately after leaving the national team. She also addresses the question of whether the national team can and should be doing more with their extensive pool of athlete alumni than they currently are. Contributor Edie Thies Morgan asked a simple question. Is there something in the water in Lake Tahoe and in Squaw Valley in particular? This national skiing hub has produced a plethora of elite level ski racers for decades and Edie takes a look at what makes this part of the country so successful at developing athletes well suited for success at the sport's highest levels. Did you know that an athlete from Squaw Valley has represented the United States in every Winter Olympics since 1964? Think about that for a moment. What can your program do to replicate that success? Editorial intern Caitlin Blinkhorn published her third On the Way Up junior profile this week, this time highlighting multi-sport talent and Durango, Colorado native's Toby Scarpella. Scarpella is not only a talented U16 ski racer, but also has his bar set pretty high in the biking world with state titles in both sports in his sights this coming season. 
to read all of those stories and so much more, head on over to SkiRacing.com. And coming up after a quick break will be my interview with Paula Moulton. The single best way to support what we do at Ski Racing Media is through a subscription to Ski Racing Premium. From podcasts and World Cup race coverage to our wildly popular American Downhiller web series, Ski Racing Premium is the engine behind everything we do at Ski Racing Media. It literally keeps the lights on for us. Subscriptions cost $35 per year for unlimited premium content on SkiRacing.com, which includes full-length World Cup race features and many of the pieces you will hear us talking about on this show. If you are interested in supporting what we do, head on over to SkiRacing.com and click the subscribe button. All right. Now we'll get you back to the show. Welcome back to Tips and Tales, and I am on the phone with a very special guest, breakout slalom star this past season for the American women and former now NCAA star Paula Moulton. Paula, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So a little update on you after a really spectacular World Cup season where we saw you finish in the points time and time again, you actually took some time off and had a little bit of surgery back in May. Can you give us a little update on that and what your status is? Yeah, totally. So I like to call it kind of a fake surgery. Obviously it wasn't, but um, I was experiencing like minor patella pain all season and then I went into spring camp and we did some pretty intense heavy loads days and I ended up going to see a really good friend of mine, PT, who sent me to two doctors, and within, like, a week's period, I was having knee surgery to remove this, like, tiny little bone that's, like, floats above your, um, like, above your tibia, and then they, like, sliced open my patella to cut it open, so it was never, like, a reconstruction of anything, it was just, like, a removal of this tiny piece of bone. Mm-hmm. And was that just kind of a chronic thing, or did you fall and then have this pain? What what started the process? Um, when I was younger, I had Osgood-Schlatter's, which is like where you like grow too fast and causes you to have these like weird bumps right below your patella tendon. And um, when I had it, I always had like a bunch of knee pain, which made me quit some sports. And then I haven't had pain with it. And then like that little bump that floats there never fused to my bone. And so it was just moving. And so with overuse of it, it just like started to make my patella super angry and cause a lot of pain. And so they were just taking that bone out to remove the pain causing part of it. Gotcha. So what does your timetable look like to get back on snow? Are you full on 100% in the gym right now? Or will you be back on snow in the coming weeks? Um, countdown's at three days. We fly to Argentina in three days. So on Thursday. Ooh, perfect. That's awesome. So this past season, like we said before, you had a breakout year on the World Cup and you were nominated to the B team. And for people who don't necessarily follow the sport on a day-to-day basis, you actually have quite a history with the U.S. team. You've been ranked in the top 100 in the world in slalom for, I want to say, about the last five years now. You're the 2015 World Junior Slalom Gold Medalist from Hafiel, Norway, and you also made the World Championship team that year and finished 20th in slalom in Beaver Creek. So looking back on your career and where you are now, was it meaningful for you to be recognized again and make it back to the national team this past season? Um, it was an exciting adventure this season, definitely to like work my way back onto the World Cup. I never really was sure like where I was going to go when I finished school, so to be able to have a season like this uh, that has put me back in contention to be 
for like more world championship spots or potentially like, Olympic spots in the future is really pretty exciting. And I guess it was super unexpected is what you would say. <laughs> yeah. And you finished your junior year at the University of Vermont this past May and will be taking the year off from your academic studies to go full time with the B team on the World Cup. What kind of a transition is that going to be like for you? Do you think that it will be a challenge since you had all this success balancing school and skiing in the past? Or do you think it will be more of a a breath of fresh air to not have this other responsibility on your shoulders? I've kind of been thinking about that a lot because all my friends are getting ready to go back to school now. And it's like, oh, I actually like very recently decided that it wasn't going to be possible for me to take my full load of courses um, this season. Um, I'm a biology major with a chem minor, so um, as soon as you get into your senior year, you're taking a bunch of upper-level biology classes that have really intense labs, and then I came to a conclusion that I wasn't going to be able to give my 100% in school and my 100% in skiing, so I decided to remove myself from the sport, like, from ski, <laughs> sorry, remove myself from school just to be able to focus on skiing, so I think... I'm hoping it's going to be a breath of fresh air, but I'm definitely going to um, need something to distract myself so I don't think too much. That's great. So do you have any ideas of what that distraction might be? Um, I think I'm going to try to get into reading. Reading. All right. (laughs) So if there's any book recs, let me know. Okay, will do. I know a few of the women on the team do play music. I know Alice Merriweather and Loren Ross travel with ukuleles and guitars. Do you think you'll pick up any instruments this winter? Um, Most likely not. I have zero musical ability of any sort. So (laughs) I think I'll stick to the listening on that and try to get into reading for now. And if it really goes poorly in the reading... Who knows? Anything can happen on the World Cup circuit. Gotcha, gotcha. So looking back to this past season, you finished the year 27th in the world in slalom, which is a career high for you, and you finished inside of the top 20 in all but two of your World Cup starts. Uh, What made this past season different than seasons before? Was it something with your technique? Was it your approach to race day or maybe the, the tactics you took into your runs? Or was there a fitness aspect that helped you have this success this past year? Um, I think there's always a combination of things that lead to success, but mostly just completely unexpected success is mostly, I think, because I've been happy all season. I took an interesting turn. Um, my boyfriend of many years is now my full-on technician for the upcoming year, and he was last year as well, and I think having him travel with me is like this sense of peace that he like is in the start gate, and it's like you're so calm and focused, and there's nothing really that can throw you on edge when someone that you really care about is right behind you, and like telling you you can do it, and it's just um, kind of been a whirlwind of change for me to be able to be super happy all year long while competing, and you're like away from family. Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little more. I think that's a challenge that's unique to North American racers or really any athlete that's not based in Europe year-round. We talk about this a lot with the speed team in particular and how they are based in Europe from really early December until World Cup finals in March, and they all have to find their own way to kind of create a family, essentially, for them to have that support system in Europe all winter. So what was it like before your boyfriend was on tour with you in your past years traveling in Europe with the ski team? Was that a real challenge for you? Do you feel like you were supported and had almost like a safety net to lean back on when things maybe weren't going well? Yeah, so... 
prior to going to school, I was in the nursing team for five years. And so I, you kind of cycle through technicians, you cycle through teammates, you cycle through coaches. And so you never really have anything that's super consistent. Although like you become like uh, really close with all your teammates and you become close with your coaches. It's not always the best to fall back on a teammate because although they are like your best friend, they're also probably having their own issues so I think it's important to really have someone who's, like, just there for you. And where it's, like, the coaches, sometimes they have seven or eight athletes to worry about. And when you have someone that's just yours, you can just be, like, let it all out and let the frustration out in one go instead of just letting it fester for a whole season. And I think the American downhiller, like, the men's side, has really figured out they're, like, basically all brothers. And they have a really great, like, basically all-American staff that just gets it. They're like, oh, we're all the way from home. Let's do fun things that aren't related to skiing. And a lot has been said about the team culture of the U.S. team in the past year or so. What do you think is the single biggest thing the ski team needs to work on when it comes to things like this and a support structure for athletes? I don't know. That's a really tough question because I haven't really been a part of the national team for quite a while. And coming back into it it's kind of interesting to come in with a different look at it like an outside in look and so I think from the outside at least what I've seen is that the women's side has grown a lot closer but I would think that like maybe more openness between like all sides of the team is like not cutting off age groups or cutting off like if someone's like I really need to go home and figure this out like not saying no to that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I think all of us at some point in our life are become homebodies and you just want a hug from your mom. And that's sometimes the hardest part when you're grinding in Europe for a couple months. Do you think your time in the NCAA ranks helped your perspective on that? I was also an NCAA athlete and one of the biggest real eye-openers for me was how much your college teammates essentially become your family during the school year. Do, do you think that culture from NCAA helped your perspective on the culture of the national team? Um, definitely a million percent. In college gear racing, as you know, it's not just you anymore. It's a team of 12 of you. <laughs> and you become the best friends with men and women on your team because you travel to train with them. You travel to races with them. You spend every Saturday night with them. <laughs> so you just become more of a family. And I think I'm going to hopefully try and take that into the USG team because walking out of like UVM, I'm pretty sad to be leaving some of my best friends. And so even though they're still my best friends on the road, like not being able to see them every day, it's going to be a definite change. So finding new friends to kind of fill in some blanks in my life will be a big part of it. And we touched on your past with the national team a little earlier, but I do want to circle that back to that real quick. You were tapped as one of the top junior talents in the country from the time you were quite young. You made the development team in high school and spent several seasons with the ski team. And in 2015, you won your World Junior Gold Medal. Then the next season, you stepped away from all of that and went to college at the University of Vermont. I was curious, what really factored into that decision, and do you think it was a positive one overall for your career? Funny how you phrase that question, just because I actually didn't step away. I was kicked off the national team. I had not made criteria. I was asked to not come back. And so that is kind of a world shake when all you've done for the last year is ski. And so I had talked like a little bit with like um, Jimmy Cochran and Tim Kelly. And so I was like, all right, here we go. Like, what else? What are my options? And so uh, I think like an hour after I got off the phone with 
Paul Christophic, I called <laughs> Bill Reichel and I was like, so here's the deal. I am not applied to UVM and I need to go to school. So what are the chances I can get in? And Bill was a super great factor in getting me into UVM and getting me settled and really taking me like under his wing and supporting all my different ventures I did while I was at UVM. Uh-huh. And were you recruited by any other schools or was UVM always your first choice? Um, going out of high school, so like you said, I did the national team in high school. I did apply to the University of Utah and I never re-upped because I was off school grind for so long that I just never really applied. And I don't think many people knew that I wasn't going back to the ski team and UVM was a pretty good fit. It was kind of ironic to have like Tim Kelly, who was previously my teammate the year before, become my coach. <laughs> but that was a fun dynamic to work through, and I just think UVM was probably my only choice. So for you personally, how did the NCAA model help your skiing? We talked a little bit about the psychological aspect of working towards a team goal, but a lot of the authority figures in the ski racing world talk about how the best way for an elite level athlete to progress is to commit to skiing with the best skiers in a highly focused environment. And for a lot of people, that means that they have to ski with the national team if they are good enough to make it. And skiing at UVM, you obviously have skiers like Laurent Saint-Germain, who has been a breakout star for the Canadians in addition to being an NCAA athlete, and also having to train with men on a regular basis in college as well. And that really makes me think of an athlete like Michaela Schifrin, who has been known to actually ski with men quite a bit when she trains. How does the NCAA model help your skiing personally? Um, like you said, I was super lucky to have Lo as my teammate. And she, although she wasn't often around because she was competing similar schedule to I when we worked together at the World Cup circuit or at training, it's like such a good hush to have someone like that but as well as like I had very like very talented other teammates that are wicked fast in training especially in GS and trying to keep up with those like younger ladies is always like a mental struggle because you're like wow they're four years younger than me but they're kicking my butt in GS right now like how do I get faster mm-hmm. as well as the men like Max Roisland who is just off the men's Norwegian team right now and he training with him every day it's like, he's still fast. I'm like, you're like six seconds behind him. And you're like, all right, well, I thought it was skiing okay. <laughs> but then you, as soon as you start comparing yourself to men, you're obviously slower. They are just faster than women, which is unfortunate. But it is a good mental push for, I think, a lot of athletes. Like you said, Michaela does it. I think there's a lot of other female athletes that succeed when playing with other men. You said it's a mental push to train with the men. Do you take anything technically or tactically from the men's sport at all as well? I, I know it can sometimes be almost like comparing apples to oranges, men skiing to women skiing in some respects, just with men being stronger in general. But have you learned anything that you've put into your own skiing from skiing with skiers like Max? Um, definitely. Max, whenever you were struggling on a day, Max would always be there to mentally pick you up. He'd be like, all right, you're like such a good skier. Like you can do this, like maybe try doing this in this section of the course. He had like always had super awesome technical advice to like help you succeed. And I think without that like relationship I built with him and like other men on our team, I don't think I would have succeeded as much as I did. So looking forward to this coming season, you're going to be full-time on the national team on the World Cup, like we've said. Do you have concrete goals you want to achieve? And if you do, are they World Cup finishes, making World Cup finals, or is it something different? Um, I think 
there's always goals, but I don't like to I like to set goals, but I don't like to like set standards. There, you want to set obtainable goals, which makes it an easier mental season and an easier physical season. So you're not like pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. But I think I was just outside of World Cup finals this year, and that was a pretty big bummer for mine <laughs> myself. Um, but I think this year definitely World Cup finals, and I'd like to end up in the top 15 in the slalom and I would also like to break through in GS this year which is a pretty big goal because I haven't been skiing a ton of GS but that's definitely a big goal of mine is to to take a step into that world of GS World Cup. And now that you've built up a World Cup resume what would you say is your favorite stop on the women's tour? Um, My favorite stop this year was uh, well results based obviously my first run at um, Zagreb was pretty mind-blowing for myself but you make mistakes and second runs happen and they don't go how you want but this year I think my favorite new stop I took was in Courchevel it's absolutely beautiful there it's hard to not love the French Alps and I do want to ask you racing in I guess your adopted home state of Vermont at the Killington World Cup with the pure amount of spectators that have come to watch that event over the past few years what do you think that says about not just the culture of ski racing in the United States, but the culture of women ski racing in the United States? Um, I think it's having the World Cup at Killington in the U.S. is unbelievable. It really helps develop the women's sport. Everyone's always so concerned about men's sports in the U.S. And to have like such a debut event for the women where so many people come and watch us is unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. And for me personally, I was totally blown away with the amount of spectators that come. I've been to some pretty big World Cups over the past few years over in Europe, and the only places I've seen bigger crowds is at the legendary men's venues like Kitzbühel, Wengen, Schladming, and Adelboden. And I believe Killington set an attendance record last season for the women's tour. Oh, I would believe it. Um, in the summer, I live in Western Mass, and I work as uh, a raft guide, and I take people from all over New England and Sometimes they catch wind of that I'm a skier, and they're like, oh, like, what about Killington? And you're like, wow, like, what a small world. Like, these people are just on a vacation, and they know about the, like, women's Killington race. Do you think it would be good for the sport to have more World Cups in the United States? Yes, especially on the women's side. I feel like sometimes it's hard to watch a sport kind of shrink because it's really hard to be a part of a sport that's so expensive, as well as there's not much exposure in the U.S. for any skiing event so i think the more you have at least in north america the more exposure the more interest you get from younger kids all right paula well thank you so much for coming on the show that was a really great talk and uh great to catch up with you and best of luck this season thanks so much i'm super excited to see what you guys are coming up next all righty hope to talk to you soon talk to you soon Alright, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, we'll talk to you all next time. See ya.